because Mark couldn't tell a joke. That's what I've heard. Let me pick this up so you can hear me good. Okay. American history class in college. Professor assigns five chapters of reading on civil rights. The next day, five chapters of reading. This is several years back. They don't sign it like that anymore. No. Five chapters of reading overnight. So the next day, he asked one of the men in the class to name ten of those rights, ten of those civil rights. When no student made a response, or the student made no response, the professor says, okay, just, just name five civil rights. Still, students didn't say anything. Just nothing. Finally, the exasperated professor begged, please just name one right you have as a civilian. To which the student brightened up and he said, oh, the right to remain silent. So I guess that's what he did. Well, uh, we're not going to have that tonight. Matt Haynes comes to us from the Hillcrest Church of Christ in Abilene, Texas. He arrived there a few years ago after preaching for the church in Clifton, Texas. Uh, excellent preacher. He graduated from ACU. He's married to Leslie, and they have two children, Eden and Ellis, which I ate supper with, and they thoroughly enjoyed uh, SpongeBob while I visited with their parents. So I'm glad to have Matt here tonight. Matt, come and talk to us about Psalm 39. How about now? There we go. Well, I'll, uh, I'll tell you the same thing I told the church at Hillcrest when I arrived there. Um, I know what you're thinking, so let's just name the elephant in the room. I probably don't have much uh, credibility before you just because I'm a visitor, but probably because there's something else on your mind as you look at me, and you're thinking, wow. I can't believe Hillcrest hired somebody who's so handsome, right? <laughs> no? Not the adjective you were looking for? Uh, young. And, and I am young. And uh, I, I don't have any business standing before you uh, as a teacher or preacher, nor do I have any business doing that at Hillcrest. Uh, so my plan there and my plan here will be the same, and that is I'm going to stick as closely as I can to the words of Scripture because I'm guessing that has a lot of credibility uh, with you. And that's what we'll be doing uh, tonight. Um, you might have heard about the 85-year-old woman who was getting married at a funeral home. And it just so happened that this was uh, her fourth marriage that uh, she was engaging in. Her first marriage had been to a banker. Her second marriage had been to an actor. Third, she had married a preacher. And now fourth, she was marrying a funeral home director. Uh, of course, the fourth marriage and the odd place of this uh, wedding caught the attention of a few people, and somebody went up to and asked her about that. What's all this about, getting married here for a fourth time now and at a funeral home? And she said, well, it's all part of the plan. To which they said, the plan? What are you talking about? She said, well, you know, one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, and now four to go. So she had a plan. Uh, 
And my guess is that no matter how unpleasant it might be, every one of us at some point in our lives needs to think about the truth that one day, one day we will all go. One day we will go. Uh, and I think that's what this psalm, Psalm 39, is really all about. It's, it's, it's coming to grips with. It's confronting the reality that one day you and I, we will go. We will breathe our very last. We have an expiration date. One day every person in this room is going to die. Real chipper, right? I know. But that's the reality of some of the psalms. In fact, that's the reality of of a lot of the psalms. A lot of the psalms are dealing with topics that, if we're honest, sometimes we'd rather not talk about. They address issues and and experiences in life that a lot of times we don't feel comfortable conversing uh, about. They say things we're scared to say. They tell stories we'd rather not tell. Uh, The Psalms are this collection of stories and utterances that speak some of those very stories that most of us would rather not talk about. They name those joys. They name those sorrows that many of us experience. In fact, as I was preparing for uh, tonight, uh, this song, which is just a secular song, has absolutely nothing to do with the Psalms, uh, just kept coming over and over again in my mind. It's a song written a few years ago by a music artist named John Mayer, and the song is simply entitled, And the lyrics, I think, are interesting because they 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 reiterate what David is going to say in this psalm, but really what all of the psalms are about, and that is there are some things you just have to say. And these are the lyrics to John Mayer's song. He says, take all of your wasted honor, every little past frustration, take all of your so-called problems, better put them in quotations. Say what you need to say. Walking like a one-man army, fighting with the shadows in your head, living out the same old moment, knowing you'd be better off instead if you would only say what you need to say. Even if your hands are shaking and your faith is broken, even as the eyes are closing, do it with a heart wide open. Say what you need to say. I like that, and I think that's exactly what you see David doing here in Psalm 39. If you've got your Bibles, turn there with me. Uh, if not, we'll be, it'll be on the screen. Psalm 39. Look at what David has to say here. He said, I will watch my ways and keep my tongue from sin. I will put a muzzle on my mouth while in the presence of the wicked. So I remained utterly silent, not even saying anything good. But my anguish increased, my heart grew hot within me, while I meditated, the fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. We'll pause there for just a moment. I love what David says there. He says, I'm experiencing something that is touching the deep recesses of my soul, and I tried to keep it in. I tried to stay quiet, I tried to be silent, but it burned a fire within me. I just had to speak. At some point, I had to say certain things that were on my mind. And that's the way most of us are wired. That at some point, we can bury things down for a long time, but at some point, those things are going to come to the surface. At some point, those frustrations, those fears, those sorrows, even those exciting moments and those victories and those triumphs, at some point, you're going to have to utter some words out of that experience. And that's what David is saying here uh, in the early aftermath of the massacres that occurred in Rwanda in the early 90s, uh, they sent a woman psychologist into one of these refugee camps over there in Rwanda, in Tanzania. 
And it seemed that the women of that camp, uh, though they were safe from slaughter, they were no longer in danger, none of them were sleeping. And during her visit to the refugees, this psychologist learned that the women who had witnessed the murder of family and of friends, and they had been told by these camp officials at this refugee camp not to speak of the atrocities that they had experienced. And so the women followed the instructions. They never talked about it. But the memories of the carnage that they had witnessed and endured haunted them. And they couldn't sleep because of it. So this female psychologist decided that in response to the situation, what she would do is she would set up a story tree. A safe place for the women to speak of their experiences. And every morning she went out to the edge of the camp and she waited under the canopy of this really huge shade tree. The first day, no one came. On the second day, one woman appeared. She told her story and she left. On the second day, another woman showed up and then another. And within the span of a few days, nearly every woman at the camp had showed up and they were gathering each and every day to listen to one another's stories, to encourage each other, to cry with one another, to say what they needed to say. And finally, after a few weeks of having done this, the psychologist knew that things were actually working the way she had hoped that they would because reports from the camp came back. And guess what? The women were sleeping. Because they got something off their chest. Because they were able to talk about some of the experiences that they had endured. And they were able to say the things that they needed to say. And you hear this in David's voice as he says, I've got something and it is burning within me. And until I speak about it, I won't be able to rest. We're wired that way. I even watched an interview on 60 Minutes here recently about soldiers coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq and they're dealing with PTSD and they don't know how to interact with people and they're withdrawing and they're isolating themselves. And one of the greatest things that they've been able to do in treating some of these soldiers with post-traumatic stress syndrome and disorder is that they've put them in these groups and they're doing a therapy very similar to what women do sometimes after they've experienced rape. And that is that they are telling the story with a group of people who can empathize and who have been there and who have experienced some of those same things. And they tell the story over and over and over and they name some of those fears and they name some of those pains that are haunting them and burning a hole in their hearts because we're wired that way. There are some things we have to say and David here says, I had to get this off my chest. I tried to be silent. I tried to be quiet. I couldn't do it any longer. And we find out in the next few verses what it is that's really bothering David. Look at what he says. He says, show me, Lord, my life's end, the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. Surely everyone goes around like a mere phantom. In vain they rush about, heaping up wealth without knowing whose it will finally be. But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Save me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of fools. For I was silent. I would not open my mouth, for you are the one who has done this. Remove your scourge from me. I am overcome by the blow of your hand. When you rebuke and discipline anyone for their sin, you consume their wealth like a moth. Surely everyone is but a breath. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Do not be deaf to my weeping. I dwell with you as a foreigner, a stranger, as all my ancestors were. 
Look away from me, that I may enjoy life again before I depart and am no more. David is heading into a crisis of some sort. He's experiencing, he is encountering something that is causing him to question some of the things that he holds near and dear to his heart. He's experiencing something that has to do with death. And whether it's his own, maybe he had a close call, maybe he almost died, maybe he was sick, maybe somebody tried to assassinate him as king. We don't know, the story's not told, but somehow or another he has encountered death. Maybe he's encountered the death of a loved one, as some of you have. Maybe he sat beside a friend or a family member who was dying and breathed their very last. Whatever the case may be, he is dealing with death. And he's realizing how short life is. And he says, life is but... It's but a breath. It's just a breath. Only a breath is our life. And he's frustrated by this. And yet he brings it all to God. And what's interesting, I think, about the way this psalm ends, verses 7 through 13, I'm not sure if David understands it correctly. But he's going to bring it before God. David thinks that all of the pain that he's enduring is the direct result of God's hand punishing him for something he's done. And maybe that's true. Sometimes we assume that when people are going through difficult times, we assume they must have done something to warrant God's punishment. And sometimes that occurs, but not always. Sometimes it's not the reason that people are enduring pain or suffering. But David assumes this must be what's happening. And he is pleading with God to ease up. Let up a little bit. Let me breathe a little bit. I'm crushed underneath your hand. And he brings it all before God. And I I think that's one of the great things about this psalm. Is that one of the things we understand from all the psalmists really is, you don't have to understand everything perfectly clear in order to talk to God about it. You can bring some of those concerns before God. And if it feels like God is picking on you, the psalmists, at least what we learn from their example is, it's okay to say that to God. It's okay to bring that to God. It's okay to bring that in faith and say, I don't know what to do with this, and I don't know who to take it to, so I'm just going to bring it to you, God. Here's my heart. I don't know what else to do. He says some things that are on his heart. He says some things that he is dealing with. He's dealing with a crisis of mortality of some sense. He's being forced to confront death. And most of us don't like talking about death. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. Most of us aren't comfortable a great deal talking about death. And there's always somebody you know who is. And we don't like to hang around them too much, do we? Debbie Downer, you know, every time they start talking, wah, 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 you know, they they seem to just bring everybody down because they're always focusing on the rough stuff, the hard stuff, the things we'd rather not talk about. They don't like the lighthearted conversations. And what's really interesting, if you want to know how much somebody likes avoiding a certain topic or a certain experience or anything else, is think about how many euphemisms there are for a phrase or an experience. Think about how many euphemisms there are, because that's our way of never actually naming it for what it is. And how many euphemisms can you think of for death? They kicked the can. They're pushing up daisies. They went to meet their maker. Right? We can go on and on and on. All these creative ways that we had of describing someone dying without actually saying the words, they died. Or I'm going to die someday. Or think about the ways that we can't really talk about death without even joking about it. It's our way of putting it under the guise of humor so that it can't be too close to us. It's close enough, safe at an arm's distance. So I start with a joke tonight about a lady who's preparing, you know, one to get ready, two to, two to go, all that stuff. And we, we got to keep it at an arm's distance because if it gets too close to us, it's too much to bear. We can't be under that microscope or that light for too long. Most of us are uncomfortable uh, with death. 
Psychologist Richard Beck says he thinks there's a reason that that is, but this is how he describes our uncomfortable feelings about the topic of death. He says the situation today in more affluent parts of the world with our technology, our market economies, scientific scientific agriculture, advanced medicine, all that has largely insulated us from death. We modern people rarely face death in our day-to-day lives, and consequently, we rarely give death any thought at all. In fact, if we do take time to contemplate death, others might think that we have a morbid or depressive temperament. So it's not just that we don't think of death, it's that we shouldn't think of death. And we've avoided death so much, and he says, I think it's really the result of three major shifts that have occurred uh, in, in our lifetime. And I think he's on to something here. He says the first is our relationship to our food. Because back in the day, in the agrarian and the herding cultures, there was a close relationship between death and the food that you ate, right? You had the animals on your farm, and you raised them, you killed it, you bled it, you prepared it, you skinned it, and then you ate it not long after that, Right? And these days, it's a lot different than going to McDonald's and ordering 10 chicken McNuggets, you know? I mean, we don't really think about that when we order our food. We're aware of it somewhere in the recesses of our mind, but some of us even aren't. Wesley and I have some friends back in Abilene who bought some chickens recently, and they have... uh, couple of kids that are about our our children's age they have a five-year-old and he the, the father was telling me one day they went to mcdonald's to get some chicken mcnuggets not long after they started raising chickens and they're eating their nuggets and all of a sudden the youngest one he just goes chicken chicken started to dawn on him there's some relationship between this little nugget i'm eating actually there's not if you know how mcdonald's makes their nuggets but uh, there's supposed to be a relationship. Uh, any of you have ever watched a documentary about how McDonald's makes their food? There's not really much food in there, but I digress. But, but our food, our relationship has changed with our food sometimes. So where we order and it just appears ready and made to eat. And we don't realize that there was life in these bones. There, there was flesh. There was some sort of life that existed here. And it had to die in order to provide food and sustenance for us. Our relationship with our food has changed. And he says another thing that has changed is how and where we die. And that is that a long time ago, people used to pass away in their homes. And the, the, the doctors might make visits out to your house, though there was rarely anything they could really do if you were very sick. But the ill and the injured and the elderly, they all died at home. And he, he says people witnessed mothers and they witnessed babies tragically dying in childbirth. In addition, after death, families would often prepare the bodies so that they could be buried. In fact, it wasn't uncommon uh, for, for those who, who had grown up in a home like this, that by the time they were adults, by the time they were facing death, a young female would have at some point served as a hospice nurse, and a young male at some point would have helped dig a grave. Because they experienced death all the time. In fact, every residence was both a hospital and a funeral home. But that's not the way most of us encounter death in our day-to-day experiences, is it? Death has been pushed somewhere else. It's, it's in the nursing homes. It's in the hospitals. It's outside of our living residences for most of us on a day-to-day basis. And the last thing he says is the way that our relationship to cemeteries has changed. That people used to be buried in their, on, on a person's plot or family property or maybe even on the church property. But now cemeteries are being, uh, they're, they're not really somewhere in the location of where most of our happenings and activities occur in our cities. A lot of times they're at the edges of towns or you have to go on a lot of back 
streets to find where that burial plot is because it's not front and center. We don't like to think about death. Our culture doesn't like to spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about death. But what David says is, I couldn't get away from it. Over and over again, I tried to be silent. I tried not to talk about it, but there it was staring me in the face. Our lives are but a breath. We get a few, and it's over like that. And he's having this existential crisis as he's talking about it here in this psalm. Our lives can sometimes even be consumed by the fear of death. In fact, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2 says that one of the things Jesus came to do is to set us free from the fear of death. Because fear can enslave us. Fear can paralyze us. And that story of of death and how how it comes for all of us, young and old, healthy and unhealthy, it doesn't matter, death is coming for all, that can paralyze us. It's one of those stories that if you allow it to have too much power in your life, it can be pretty detrimental to your life. So we have these stories that are going on in our background and we have to make sure we keep those stories right. So I've been uh, doing a lot of reading for some reason the last couple of years uh, on on behavioral economics. I know it sounds really interesting, but it actually is. Uh, And it has to do with what is it that makes people tick? What is it that affects people's decisions, especially when it comes to the things that they buy or how they act in the marketplace, any of those things? What is it that messes with our mind, in other words? And what's interesting is there are a lot of things that affect our minds that oftentimes we're not aware of. And so let me just test your stereotypes here for a moment. Stereotypes, okay? I'm just talking stereotypes. This is not uh, necessarily the way that it is. But if you were to be asked a question, who's, uh, who's better at driving, men or women, the stereotype? Type would be. <laughs> You've heard a different stereotype than I have. <laughs> the, the stereotype I've heard is men. Uh, isn't, that, isn't that interesting? Uh, let's think about a different thing. <laughs> How about the stereotype of who's better at math, men or women? Women? Again, I've, I've heard. I've heard men for some reason. I'm not saying this is the way it is in my family, but it's a stereotype. If you talk about ethnicity instead of gender, which ethnicity is the best at math? The Asians, right? So the question that some of these behavioral economists and psychologists came up with is, well, how does an Asian woman do on a math test? Interesting, huh? And so what they did was they got all these Asian women together who had about the same mathematical abilities. And they were going to put them in a room and they they divided them up into three groups. And the first group, they just wanted to get a base test score. How did they perform on the math test? And they gave them this test that it was right at the edge, the cusp of their mathematical abilities. And so this is going to be a stressful test. It was going to put a strain on them. But they got a baseline score. This is how well they performed. Interestingly enough, the second group, right before they took the exact same test, right before they took the test, They gave them all these subtle cues and reminders, not overt, nothing out loud, but subtle cues and reminders that they were women. They just wanted to remind them of that fact right before they took the test. You know what happened to their scores? Interesting. The third group, right before they took the test, they gave them all these subtle cues and reminders telling them, remember, you're Asian. You know what happened to their scores? They went up. Isn't that interesting, the way that affects even our performance on something as silly as a test? 
I'll get to talk about athletics here for just a moment. There was a, uh, there was a group of people, they, they wanted to see how these white males performed on athletic tests. And they had all about the same mathematical abilities, and they, gave, they got a first baseline score, and they had them go through performing on the, on the athletic test. They saw how they performed. The second group they brought through, and right before they took the test, they told them, this is a test measuring your innate, gifted, athletic ability. You know how they did on the test? Terribly. Because the stereotype is white men can't jump, right? It's not a stereotype in my family. I can tell you that. The third group, they had them come through and they said, this has nothing to do with athletic giftedness or natural ability. This is just about critical thinking and trying to get through this this maze of, of physical feats. And their tests went higher up because they were thinking about it in a different way. And they thought, well, maybe I could handle that. I'm not athletic, athletically gifted, but perhaps I can think my way through this or something. And it's interesting the way our, our minds work and they, they cause us to perform better or worse depending on what story is operating in our background. I'll give you one if you're an educator here for just a moment. They took a group of people and they wanted to see how prevalent cheating was uh, when it comes to taking tests and all of that. By the way, cheating is rampant if you didn't know that. Whether it's in the school system with young kids or it's adults. And they gave them an incentive. The better you do on this test, the more money we will give you. So there's all kinds of incentive to do well on this test. And then they put this group of people in a room with all kinds of temptations to cheat. With all kinds of eyes watching them and cameras watching to see how, how often people would cheat when they were given the incentive, if you do better on this test, we'll give you more money. They got a baseline score. They took a second group of people, and right before they took the test, they had them list something completely arbitrary. Like, right before you take the test, we'd like you to list the last ten movies that you've seen. And they'd come up with whatever list they could come up with of the last ten movies they'd seen, and it didn't change their cheating at all. The third group of people, right before they took the test, they said, we want you to list as many of the ten commandments as you can name. And it didn't matter how many of the commandments they could list, just having that operating in the back of their minds changed their experience and their perspective when it came to cheating in that moment. They cheated less for some reason. Because there they are, thinking in the back of their minds about this moral being or this God who is watching them, who has a moral compass. This is right and this is wrong. Stories operate uh, in our minds. I'll give, you, I'll give you one more, just because I've I got to get this information out somehow. I've been reading all this stuff. So. I took a group of 18 to 22-year-olds, and they had them doing all these different exercises and tests. And one of the things they had them come up with, they divided them into different groups, and they gave them five words, and they had to assemble four-word sentences out of these five words. And all, every group got a different set of words, but one group in particular got words that are typically associated with the elderly. They didn't say anything about people being old. They just had words that are typically associated with the elderly. So they gave them words like gray or wrinkle or Florida or bald. And they, they gave them some of these words. And they assembled, the, they assembled the four word sentences out of these five words. And then they went down the hallway to the next experiment. They thought that was part of the experiment. The experiment was watching how fast or slow they walked as opposed to the other groups down the hallway to the next experiment. Interestingly enough, that group of 18 or 22 year olds who had the words typically associated with the elderly walked down the hallway like this. Isn't that interesting the way that certain stories and certain words and certain concepts change our actual behavior without us even knowing it? And I want to say something tonight. I think death plays that type of role in our lives, more specifically, the fear of death. It's one of the things we rarely talk about, but it always, always seems to be operating in the backgrounds 
of our minds and our consciousness. Because we are constantly trying to do things to attain security, to attain power, to somehow create a life in which we no longer have to fear death. And so we try to get the best health care we can. We try to vote for the best party we can. We try to do any and everything, amass as much wealth as we can, whatever it is we can do so that we can feel safe and secure and we don't have to fear that ugly thing called death. And David says... I tried all that. I'm a king. I heaped as much wealth as I could up. And you know what? Death's still coming. I put myself in a fortress in a castle. And you know what? Death still comes. He says, I couldn't hide from the reality. And some of us spend our entire lives with probably not even knowing it. I think trying to feel safe and secure so that we don't have to fear death. We don't want to talk about being but a breath in this life. So he says, people spend their entire lives, they pursue wealth, they heap up all kinds of treasures in big barns, and they never even know who's going to get to experience it and enjoy it because they die before they ever get to that point in their lives. That's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is talking about, by the way. He says, you work your whole life, and as, to, to, to quote Randy Harris, says, you work your whole life and then you have to leave it all to your idiot son. You, know, you, don't, you don't really know who's going to get to, to spend that. You, you amass all this wealth, you amass all this treasure, and then somebody else gets to enjoy it. And David says, I tried that, but this just kept staring me straight in the face. Life is but a breath. We only get a few, and we don't know how many it is that we get. We don't know how many we have left, but I think it's really interesting what he says back in verse 7. I'll go back there. Verse 7. He says, but now, Lord, what do I look for? And this is where it's at. My hope, my hope's in you. Death is staring me straight in the face. It is always lurking around every corner. I keep coming back to this reality that life is just a breath. Here's what I do. My hope's in you. My hope's in you that somehow you will use these few breaths for your glory and for your kingdom. That you will make them mean something. And I think that's the promise of the Psalms, is that no matter what you do in your life, if you do it for the glory of God and His kingdom, those breaths, no matter how many you get, whether it's a lot or just a few, those breaths matter, and they're not in vain. In God's kingdom, those breaths have a a purpose that goes on and on, even into eternity. If you live your life for the right things and the right one, that those breaths can matter. There's no escaping the fact that our lives are but a breath. But there is escaping a life that's lived that's in total vanity. And he says, our lives are but a breath. My hope, my hope is ultimately in you. I like the way that N.T. Wright says it. He says this, you are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You're not restoring some great painting that's shortly going to be thrown on the fire. You're not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something that will become, in due course, part of God's new world. 
Every act of love, gratitude, kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of His creation, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or to walk, every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings and for that matter one's fellow non-human creatures, and of course every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world, all of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. That is the logic of the mission of God. I love what he's saying there and that he's saying our breaths can matter, that they don't have to be in vain. There's no escaping the fact that life is a breath, but your breaths don't have to be unimportant. They don't have to be inconsequential. They don't have to be in vain. They can matter. Because, I don't know if you know this or not, breath is a gift. Every breath you take is a gift from God. In Genesis chapter 2, right at the very beginning of the story of Genesis, you know where breath comes from? It's this gift that God gives humanity. Genesis chapter 2, God breathes life into the nostrils of the humans He's created. John chapter 20, after Jesus rises from the dead, you know what He does? When He gives them the Spirit, you know what He says? He breathes on them and He says, Receive the gift of the Spirit. What's interesting about the Spirit is that word for Spirit, both in Hebrew and Greek, the word, uh, both times it means Spirit, it means wind, or it means, means breath. Every breath you receive is a gift from God. And here's what I want to tell you tonight. Any breath that's filled with the Spirit of God is not in vain. It's not in vain. And what we should do with the reality that death is coming for all of us isn't be paralyzed by fear. It's get busy living for the glory of God. So I want to end tonight the way I started. And I want to start, I want to end with the lyrics from that song by John Mayer. And that is, you've got a few short breaths. Say what you need to say. Say what you need to say in God, to God. And say what you need to say to the people in your lives. Because far too many of us go our entire lives waiting to the last minute to speak some of the words that we've been holding on our hearts. We've been holding deep within us. You know, I was thinking about this recently, this whole psalm about the brevity of life. And I was thinking about my kids. And at Hillcrest, we do this great thing with our seniors who are graduating high school. And we buy them these Bibles. And the, and the whole senior year, our youth minister gives the, the parents of this graduating senior a Bible that's a journal Bible. It's got big margins and notes on the sides. And the entire year, as they're going through their senior year, the parents are taking this Bible to friends and to family. And they're writing notes and they're jotting down thoughts. They're saying, look at this scripture, pay attention to this. And they're praying prayers of blessings and they're writing all of this on the pages of this Bible to give to this senior so that when they leave, they have something to take with them. And I thought, that's great. I can't wait to do that with my kids who are now six and four. And then it dawned on me. I may not get to be there for their high school graduation. Why would I wait? Why would I wait to give them that gift? Why would I wait to say those things for another 14 years? It makes no sense. So one of the things that Leslie and I have tried to do is we bought some Bibles recently. We're going to start filling them up. 
And we're going to start writing some things to them. Pay attention to this. Blessing them with certain words. Read this prayer. Hear these words. Look to this in times of hope. Look to this in times of trouble or need. Look to this when you need a word of encouragement from God. Don't forget to read this story. Don't forget to be inspired by this person. Look to the faith of those who have gone before you. And we're filling that up. We're trying to say what we need to say. If there's one thing I can tell you tonight, that's this. Say what you need to say. You get a few breaths in this life. Don't waste them. Don't waste them spending time watching too much football, looking for too many deals at shopping malls, even doing great things. Sometimes coming to a lot of church services and hearing a lot of speakers speak. Say what you need to say. Use those few breaths in the power of the Spirit and for for the glory of God. We only get a few. Life is but a breath. Let's do something meaningful with them. Thank you for your time tonight. Thank you, Matt.